Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. This season, I am covering cases from across Manhattan in New York City. Tonight is no different, and we are back to a neighborhood I've covered all season long. Well, technically this house isn't in Greenwich Village, but a few blocks east of Washington Square Park in a small neighborhood called NoHo. The famous SoHo is South Houston, and this is, you guessed it, North Houston. Incredibly original. I actually found out that the neighborhood in Brooklyn called Dumbo is an acronym down under Manhattan Bridge Overpass. They really love making shit up. But I was just in Greenpoint today grabbing coffee with a friend that is (laughs) moving to Kansas from New York City. Kansas. The straights be wildin'. I don't know. I've never been to Kansas. I would love to visit eventually. I'm a Midwest boy myself, but not country Midwest. So I know Kansas City is obviously a city, but a much smaller city than what I'm used to coming from Chicago and now New York. But I will visit one of these days. I'll make it. All I picture, though, in Kansas is tornadoes and cows. I don't know what else they got. Wheat? Yes, wheat. Tornadoes, cows, and wheat. (laughs) But it will not be this weekend because this upcoming weekend is Pride Weekend. So happy Pride to everybody. Happy queerness. Happy gay, lesbian, bisexual, transsexual, asexual, intersexual, pansexual, whatever you are, congrats, and live it up this weekend. I have so many events planned because my friends are drag queens, and so I will be watching RuPaul's Drag Race tonight. This is coming out on Friday, so I will be watching RuPaul's Drag Race tonight. I will be... Going to a couple parties Saturday, probably a Madonna party. Sunday, there's a pool party, a barbecue. There's a lot of shit going on. The parade is obviously Sunday. I don't know if I'm going to the parade, but it is Sunday if you want to check it out. And there's Pride Fest on Sunday. It's going to be wild. The city is alive during Pride. So sorry for everyone who's working that day, but gay people should not have to work on Pride Weekend. It's homophobic. There, I said it. I'm not working, so I will be having a blast with friends, and I cannot wait. And I'll probably talk about it next episode. But So stay tuned. But let's jump into tonight's episode. I'm covering what some consider the most haunted place in New York City called the old merchant's house it's now called the merchant's house museum so i'll be referring to it as both old merchant's house and the merchant's house museum 
Again, it's located in NoHo on 4th Street between Lafayette and Bowery. I think farther north on Bowery, it's considered 3rd Avenue. I believe so. For those who have never been to New York City or have like been once and don't really know about it, things to know about New York City, avenues run north-south and streets run east-west in Manhattan. Because in fucking Queens, I have a friend that lives in Astoria, and going over there, it's wild. You get 30th Street, 30th Avenue, 30th Boulevard, 30th, I don't know, Court, all next to each other. And your friend will be like, I live off 30th. And it's like, okay, well, there's like five 30ths next to each other. Which one is it? I don't know who thought that was a good idea, but... Manhattan, it's a lot simpler. In the grand scheme of Manhattan, the Merchant's House Museum is downtown. Though, when the house was built, it was considered far north from the bustling South Street Seaport area, which I love visiting today. South Street Seaport areas, cobblestone streets, got the piers. There's a tall ship hanging out there. Great restaurants. I get my hair cut over there. Go to the movie theater over there. It's a lovely place. I love visiting over there. Probably because it just feels, you know, historic. And it's right on the river. It's beautiful. But I'll get into all of that in a minute. The Merchant's House has been virtually unchanged since it was built in 1832. However, it is known as the Treadwell House since Seabury Treadwell purchased the house in 1835 for $18,000. Today, that's around $500,000. So you had to be making cash. You had to be making money, moolah, dollars. You had to be rich. Also, I'm obsessed with the first name Seabury. I have no idea why his parents chose that name for him, but it's original. I've never heard of a name like that before. And on this podcast, I talk so extensively of people repeating names, and it's exhausting to keep track of which Christopher you're talking about. But Seabury, there's only one Seabury, and I love that. So in the early 1800s, New York City was known for its trade Anything that had to do with maritime commerce, shipbuilding was huge, every other person was a merchant, international shipping was the new black, essentially. Seabury was known as a hardware merchant. That meant he imported anything from, or anything made of metal. So it could be doorknobs, it could be screws. Anything made of metal. This had a lot to do with the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825 that allowed trade. Like the success of New York City is because of the Erie Canal opening at this time. So not only could they trade to Europe and Asia, but now New York City could move west and trade to the rest of the United States and Canada around the Great Lakes. It was essentially known as the golden age of trade in Manhattan. All the wealthy merchants moved to NoHo, 
and created their own little fabulous neighborhood. There was an opera house, a large garden you could stroll through, a trotting track for your horse. Anything you could dream of, NoHo had it. I used to work on a horse farm. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast, but I worked on a horse farm for a summer. And A, I loved being around the horses. I love petting horses. I love riding horses. Everything. Horses are great. I was not a horse girl growing up. That was my brother. But I might be one now. I love horses. Painted horses, specifically. Gorgeous. Ugh. Beautiful. But this farm I worked at had a huge structure that had an indoor jumping arena. And there's this huge window that you could watch all the horses jump and stuff. And that's where I ate lunch every day. And there was a guest bedroom connected, a kitchen. It was essentially a guest house connected to this arena. And the summer after, or not even the summer, the fall after I worked the summer... They filmed an episode of Empire featuring Taraji P. Henson at the farm. And Cuba Gooding Jr. was sitting at the table I ate lunch at every day. And I was very upset they chose to do that after I left. Disappointing. In the 1800s, all these people had horses. They're all trotting around in the neighborhood. It was a huge change. NoHo was a huge change from the seaports on the south side, which were bustling, noisy, dirty, you know, all the fun little trade work going on. NoHo was also a great place to escape the horrible 1832 cholera outbreak and all the other diseases that would eventually flood a dense population like yellow fever, smallpox, etc. NoHo was far enough north where you could escape all of that, but also as far north as you could really move at that time. Everything north of NoHo was farmland. Then NoHo was kind of like the suburbs of the city. Now, the original owner of the house was Joseph Brewster, Remember, the house was built in 1832 by Joseph Brewster, who was a well-known hatter. And doing this research has really got me thinking about the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland. And I think I might dress as the Mad Hatter for Halloween. It's kind of been on my short list of Halloween costumes for a long time now. But this may be the year. I want to do my like own original take on the Mad Hatter because... I don't really want to copy the live action version and the animated Disney version is a little bit boring, pedestrian, if you will. I may actually take more inspiration from the book version of the Manhatter with his gainum pants and vest and a hat that sold for 10 shillings and sixpence. I don't know. I'm still working it through, but Halloween's creeping up. This is the time you got to start thinking about Halloween because if you don't start now, it'll be a week out and you're like, oh shit, I don't have a costume for Halloween. What do I do? And then you just like throw on a pair of underwear and boots and call it good. No, we need a process. Also, 
him being a hatter also had me looking up crazy hats. Remember, I was just at the Kentucky Derby, so I saw a million different crazy hats. But all of this <laughs> hat research, I ended up down a deep dive or a deep hole of hats and hat making. And, you know, the Victorian era was known for their hat making, which is around this time I'm talking about, 1820 to 1914. Marie Antoinette was one of the pioneers for extravagant hats. But the hats continued to get out of hand after her death. So in the late 1700s, green was a tricky color to get right for clothing and fabrics. However, chemist Carl Wilhelm, I think it's Scheel, Carl Wilhelm Scheel. I believe he was German, so Carl Wilhelm Scheel invested a he invented a new green pigment by mixing potassium and white arsenic on a copper solution it was dubbed shield green or paris green and was used for anything from wallpaper to flowers paint to food wrappers and candles it was even used for children's toys. So they really used that green color for everything. People were obsessed. The arsenic inside the color mixture was causing nausea, diarrhea, headaches, and some death. The effects were worse for the people working with the color inside factories who sat in an arsenic-filled room daily. And you know work... (laughs) There were no laws about works. You know, those people were in that room like every day, all day. In the 1860s, a report found that the average hat that had Paris green contained enough arsenic to poison 20 people. 20. On one hat. Eventually, the green faded and and was replaced with better green options or more green options. But Victorians loved the emerald-like color, and used it everywhere. Also, emerald's my birthstone, and I'm truly obsessed with the color emerald. And I probably would be poisoned, too, because I'd be wearing that shit all the time. I love green. I look good in green. I do want my wedding ring, if I ever get married, to be a bunch of, like, crushed-up emeralds. So it kind of looks... uh. Think like rock candy, but on a ring. (laughs) I hate that I use that. Rock candy, but like emerald green. Probably in a gold band. I think it'll look so sick. But that's what I want for my wedding ring. For all of you boys out there listening, that's what I want for my wedding (laughs) ring. Anyway, historians theorize that Napoleon could have been slowly poisoned from the Paris green wallpaper in his house. Same with Queen Victoria, who wore Paris green dyed fabrics often. She's even, like, painted in one of the dresses. And another fear at the time, something I've brought up many of times, was diseases spread by insects like mosquitoes and ticks. So the poor had to work regardless of their health. Like I was saying, when you're poor at that time, you just work, 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 work. And they would often 
wear secondhand clothing without being properly washed. So in one instance, a woman working for a wealthy family placed a riding habit, uh, meaning clothes and a hat that you wore while riding horses. She placed the hat onto her ill husband and the jacket. Her husband was shivering from typhus. But when the riding habit was returned to the wealthy family she worked for, one of the women in the family wore the clothes and caught typhus, then died. So we got green dyed hats causing poison. We have diseases transferred through hats causing people to die. Dead animals were also very common to be worn on hats, especially dead taxidermy birds. And to preserve the birds, or bird or birds, because there was some hat I saw that had four taxidermy birds on it. To preserve the birds, they had to be dipped in arsenic. Because arsenic was used in soaps, and preservatives, and then they would be placed on women's heads. So you're not only getting arsenic from dead animals, you're getting it from the green color. And thankfully, dead animals on hats or on clothing, that trend faded. Not because of the arsenic, but because of having dead animals on your head. Which makes sense. For men who all wore top hats... They were exposed to mercury, since the most cost-effective way to make rabbit and hair fur smooth and malleable was to use mercury. So hatters using this mercury would suffer from convulsions, cramps, trembling, paralysis, etc., And since mercury can seep into your blood from skin contact or even being in the air, it was a huge threat to the top hat wearing population. So that's just some examples of how hats could kill you at the time in history, in this history, Victorian era. Nowadays, you know, I wear baseball caps every other day or a cowboy hat here and there, but... I hope they're not using mercury in my hats or arsenic dye. I did just grab a hat from work, which is green, but it's like a forest green with a snake on it. It's kind of cute. All our chefs wear it. Anyway, back to the merchant's house. It is the only house from its time left in NoHo. The outside and inside are both original to when the, not necessarily when the house was built. The structure outside is from when the house was built. And then the inside has a little like inch by inch. It was slowly updated, but not updated to the 21st century or even really much into the 20th century. We'll get into a little bit later, but like, let's say their oil lamps were upgraded to having like, electricity in the house things like that but like everything else stayed the same the furniture stayed the same it all looks like it came straight out of an 1800s catalog 
The building does have a landmark status in New York City, so it's not going anywhere anytime soon. But what is the most wild aspect is that it's not a recreation or renovation. The house has just been maintained for almost 200 years. Seabury Treadwell had eight children with his wife, Elizabeth. Their kids' names were Elizabeth, Horace, Mary, Samuel, Phoebe, Julia, Sarah, and Gertrude. Some common, some a little more fun. Obviously, Elizabeth, Mary, Samuel, Sarah, all very, you know, religious names. But Phoebe, Gertrude, Horace, they're a little out of the box for, you know. I'm sure they were a little more common back then, obviously, than now, but still not the most common name you could have picked. They're not Matthew, Mark, or John. Only three of the eight children ever married in life, which was extremely uncommon back then, especially with four of them being women not marrying. And I'm proud of them for not marrying if they didn't find the right man, so good for them. But it's uncommon. Usually women in the early 1800s or even mid-1800s and late-1800s, it's like, girl, you got to get married to this guy because he's got money. How's our family going to survive if you don't marry someone wealthy? I mean, the Treadwells did have, they were rich. So they didn't necessarily need that. So maybe that was part of it. But apparently Gertrude, not Gertrude, Gertrude, the youngest of the eight kids, tried marrying, but the man she fell in love with was Irish, Catholic, and you guessed it, poor. So her father forbid her to marry him. And as someone who is not married and does not have children and has been single for a while, parents really need to get a grip about their kids and who they choose to marry or fall in love with. Sure, guide your kids to making better choices, but you can't outright tell them what to do because they're just going to do it instead or be really fucking sad if they don't. If she wanted to marry that man, I bet they were madly in love because otherwise she wouldn't want to marry him. Like, if they weren't madly in love, what is she marrying him for? He was poor. I bet he was hot, though. I bet that poor Irish Catholic was hot. And I do love an Irish accent. I love an Irish accent. Australian accents, Irish accents, English accents, German accents, even Southern United States accents. Give me a thick accent. I love it. Love it. Seabury Treadwell died in 1865, right as the Civil War was coming to an end. Phoebe, Julia, and Gertrude stayed in the house, but one by one, the siblings passed away, leaving Gertrude the sole survivor. But after her entire family had gone, and remember she did not marry, she was having serious financial troubles. So much so, her cousin came and purchased the house to keep it in the family, 
but let Gertrude live there until she died at 93 years old in 1933. Her family owned and lived in that house for almost 100 years, and what she left behind was truly remarkable. Original furniture, decorative art, and personal possessions, all from the 1800s. She didn't modernize a thing, which I'm sorry if I was her in 1933, I could not live there. It could not be me. I hope she was happy, but I cannot live without modern amenities. That's why I don't go camping. The ground floor has the family room, two service rooms, and the kitchen in the back of the house. The main floor has a front and back parlor for entertainment. The second floor had both master bedrooms for the parents. Remember, mom and dad slept in separate beds and separate rooms. The family room was the most used room by the family, whereas the parlor rooms were for entertaining guests. The fourth floor or the attic was these servants' rooms. And all of this is done in a Greek revival style. If you are an interior decorator, they all did it in the Greek revival. Very ornamented. Typical for that time, like, all of the houses essentially looked the same, and they were all decorated the same, and they loved that back then. They love being similar to each other and having the same amenities and style. Whereas today, I feel like we're very much like, we want we want to be original. We want to have our own shit, and nobody can copy us, and we're cool and different, which I like. I like that better. I don't want people to... I mean, I'm okay with people seeing my style and being like, hey, I like his house, or I like what he's doing over there. Let me style myself after that. That's fine. But if everybody had the same shit and all looked the same, it's boring. It's boring. It's the fun thing about having different personalities. Originality. Of course, the family had a piano because if you could play an instrument or sing in the 1800s, you were considered a catch and extremely marriageable. So to all the boys listening, I'm single And I can sing. So hit me up. This place had everything from plate warmers. Plate warmers in the 1800s for dinner. This little box you threw in the uh, fireplace. And they even had gas lighting. Which was gaggy at the time. They could even afford four servants to run the house. A full call bell system was installed inside the house. Each bell a different pitch, so the servants knew which room was ringing for them. And again, I could never be a servant. I'm too blunt, and I can't hide my feelings well. I'd be fired every other day. Some woman, some rich bitch would be like, Get me my Brussels sprouts. And I'd be like, there are no more Brussels sprouts. You've been eating Brussels sprouts for two hours. I don't have the patience. Or carry this water three floors because I need to take a sponge bath. 
because they didn't have fucking bathrooms. And I'm like, girl, you lug your own dirty water up and down the stairs. I'm not doing it. It's too much for me. Now, I know that this is the 1800s and a lot was different, but these servants only got one afternoon off a week and they were paid anywhere between one to two dollars a week. A week. Not me, mama. No ma'am could not be me. We don't know who the servants were exactly, but at the time they were likely younger Irish women who came to the United States to work, save their money, and then bring the rest of their family over the pond, if you will. Also, again, you would not catch me dead emptying a chamber pot. I would maybe suffice in the kitchen or like in Downton Abbey, one of those guys who dresses the owner and then sleeps with all the male guests. I could do that, but I'm not emptying your chamber pot. No, 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 to quote Jesse J. Gertrude's great nephew, along with some friends, took care of the house after Gertrude passed and it is now open to the public and it opened to the public in 1936. So three years after she passed away, the landmark act wasn't passed until 1965. So for around 30 years, the house was almost demolished several times. It's the only remaining house of its kind. It's the only remaining house of its kind from the 1800s, which is wild, again, because there were hundreds, if not more, of this house. And they had a, they've all been demolished in New York City, except for the old merchant's house. You can take a historical tour of the house. You can catch special events, like concerts, like classical concerts not raves or you can visit to possibly catch a glimpse of a ghost or two so let's take a quick break and i will be right back with some very specific hauntings It's the summer of 1933. There are children running around, having fun, screaming, and enjoying the last bit of summer before school starts back up in August. Everyone seems to be in a great mood when suddenly the front door of the old merchant's house flies open and a woman steps out screaming and waving her arms, telling the children that they are far too loud and that they need to quiet down. The shouting of this woman startles the parents and the children, but when they look closer, they all recognize the woman who has lived there for over 90 years, Gertrude Treadwell. 
The children immediately stop shouting and look up at the woman standing at the top of the stairs. And once Gertrude is satisfied with the silence, she turns around and heads back inside her house. Now normally you would think this is just an older woman who is just looking for some peace, and you may be right, but Gertrude was no longer an older woman in the August of 1933. Gertrude had died several weeks before, and she still haunts the house today. Now that would be unnerving, being outside and having this woman yell at you and be like, girl, I was at your funeral a few weeks ago. What the fuck? That would be wild. Wild. So Seabury Treadwell died in 1885, as I mentioned, though I don't know where exactly. However, they did have his funeral in the parlor of the merchant's house. They did the same for Eliza, aka Elizabeth, Sarah, Phoebe, Julia, and... I believe Gertrude also had her funeral there. On top of that, Phoebe died in the house by falling down the stairs to her death. Stairs are dangerous, y'all. You gotta pick up your feet. You gotta hold that hand railing. And if you don't want to do any of that because it's too dangerous, just sit on the couch. Enjoy a nice movie. Read a book. And... (laughs) Not to bring up another infamous true crime story, but the Staircase documentary about the death of Kathleen Peterson, who may have been murdered by her husband, Michael Peterson. Shrug. Nobody knows for sure. He was accused of pushing his wife down the stairs and a bunch of other shit I'm not going to get into. However... For those of you who know the case really well, I'm still stuck on this owl theory. I'm still stuck on this owl theory, and I truly don't know if I believe that Michael murdered Kathleen or if it was just a freak accident, like an owl attacking her and her falling down the stairs because there's a giant bird clawing at your face. I don't know. But we're not going to, we're not here for that. Go look up that documentary. Go watch it. Go learn about it. It's a lot. It's interesting. It's, a, it's still a mystery. But anyway, Gertrude also died in the house, but she died of old age in her bedroom. After Gertrude's entire family passed, she became extremely secluded and self-isolated from the world. The curtains were always closed, and she rarely ventured outside. And that reminds me a lot of the Collier brothers, who also lived together in New York City. Harlem, to be exact. And the brothers were hoarders and lived in seclusion, as as did Gertrude. The Collier brothers were also paranoid about intruders, So they would set up booby traps to crush anyone who broke in. I don't know if that was really something the brothers had to worry about. Because as someone from the outside looking in, if I see a hoarder's house, I don't really want to go snooping around the house. I kind of want to avoid it at all costs. 
but both Collier brothers died in their brownstone, surrounded by 140 tons of stuff. 140 tons. Now, I am obsessed with the show Hoarders, even more so now that they moved from doing two families in an hour to one family for an hour and a half. I think I like watching it because these people act and think so wildly different than myself. Like, I could tr- I could not live in a hoarded house. I truly could not live in a hoarded house. It would drive me absolutely crazy. But the tragedy these like the tragedy these people go through that jump starts the hoarding i will never understand or at least i don't understand at this point and i don't necessarily blame them but the wild thing about the collier brothers is that a neighbor called in a rumor that one of the brothers was dead inside the house police checked and found Homer Collier, who had died from starvation and heart disease. On the flip side, they couldn't locate his older brother Langley at all. The police received tips that he fled the house and headed out of state, but the police couldn't find Langley anywhere. They searched, I think, nine different states. They searched all over New York City. They couldn't find him anywhere. And while the older brother was missing, police began clearing out the house, which had, oh my god, like 3,000 books. 3,000 books. I think I've maybe read 50 books. Maybe read 50 books. And this place had 3,000 books. And I say 3,000 books, like some of there were a lot of phone books, textbooks, you know. It's not just novels, but 3,000 books. And carrying a box of books is heavy as fuck. It took weeks to clear all the stuff out of the house and attracted crowds of people in New York City who watched the cleanup. Apparently, something like 2,000 people watched this cleanup happen. 2,000 people. And on April 8th, 1947, a workman discovered Langley's body 10 feet from where his brother was discovered. That's how messy this house was. Homer was found dead first, and his brother was found dead 10 feet from where he was. 10 feet! Walk 10 feet right now and tell me you wouldn't be see a dead body lying by. Ugh. The police theorize that Langley was crawling through a makeshift tunnel to take food to his paralyzed brother when Langley accidentally set off a booby trap and was crushed by debris. And the police think that because they found him under bed springs, chest drawers, suitcases, bundles of newspapers, and bread boxes. And they had determined that he had been dead since March 9th a month prior to being discovered and that his body was partially eaten by rats. I tell you this story because it's wild to me. It's truly wild. 
and takes place in New York City, of course. But it very well could have been the fate of Gertrude 10 years later. The only difference is Gertrude didn't have a hoarding disease or a hoarding issue. She kept the house as clean as possible because she said, I believe, it was how her father would have wanted the house to look, which is also why she didn't really update it because she was still living in a, in her father's house, which I don't condone. If you, if your parents pass away and you have the money, sell the house and live somewhere else. You don't need that burden. You don't need to live in your parents' house for the rest of your life or for your entire life because Gertrude was born in that house and she died in that house. That sounds horrible to me. Biggest fear. Horrible. But she kept it really nice and she dedicated it to her father. So after Gertrude's cousin purchased the merchant's house, he discovered a secret room. There's apparently a trap door and a closet on the second floor. When opened, it leads to a ladder that goes down to a secret room on the first floor. In the room was a an 1800s jacket. But we're not really sure whose jacket. And it's believed that the ladder originally led all the way to the cellar. Which would then lead to a tunnel to a secret back exit to the house. But no one knows for sure. There's just this random room between the first and second floor. The house has been reported haunted ever since Gertrude's death. One instance had an elementary school visit during the day, and during the tour, one of the boys walked away from the group unnoticed. He wandered into Seabury's bedroom. When the class and teachers caught up to the little boy, he said he saw a man in the room, but he didn't know where he went. No one thought much of it until they were getting ready to leave, and the same little boy saw a picture of Seabury hanging in the living room. The boy pointed and said, quote, that's the man I saw, unquote. As a teacher, I'd be freaking out. As a teacher, I'd be like, you saw that man, that man that's been dead since 1865. We're never coming back here on a class field trip. Never coming back. <laughs> We're never coming back. Another instance in 1980 had tourists come to the museum and ring the doorbell. A woman in period clothing answered and told them that the house was not open right now and to come back later. The tourists did as they were told and came back. This time, a staff member at the museum... This time, a staff member at the museum answered the door and explained that they had been open this entire time and that none of their staff or guides wear period clothing. Strange. Very strange. Gertrude is possibly the most commonly seen ghost in the house. She is sometimes seen as a child, but usually seen as an elderly woman. 
And that may be the first time I've read that the ghost of someone appears to people at different times in their life. I feel like usually apparitions are of people that age they pass away. But you can see Gertrude playing the piano and humming along. She is seen in her bedroom. She's seen on the stairs. And she's seen around the front door. Museum staff often will see an indent on Gertrude's bed in the morning when they get to work as if someone was sleeping in the bed and had just gotten up. And they say, the staff says that they smooth the bed out every night. So, I don't know. It's strange. Unless you have a homeless person sleeping in the bed, it's strange. But of course, Gertrude is not the only one haunting the house. As I mentioned before, a kid saw her father, Seabury. But another time, a visitor was having a lengthy... But another time, a visitor was having a lengthy conversation with an older man who wore a jacket that smelled of mothballs. And if you've never smelled mothballs, I hope you never do. After a few minutes, someone tried to get this woman's attention. So she turned around to answer them. But when she turned back to the man, he was gone. She later recognized the man after looking through photos of the family, the Treadwell family, and realized she was talking to Gertrude's brother, Samuel, who died in 1917. On a different tour, a few people were in the front bedroom and were headed to the study when an older man blocked their way and told them to leave the house The guests did as they were told, but on their way out, they recognized that Seabury was the one they had just interacted with upstairs. Again, based on that portrait hanging in the living room. I don't think I've ever researched a place with so many full-on apparitions of people and guests having conversations, like full-on conversations with ghosts and not realizing they were ghosts. Besides the smells and beds being disturbed, guests and staff regularly hear footsteps, but more often children's footsteps in the hallway upstairs. You know how much children's footsteps thrill me. I talk about it a lot on this podcast. A team of ghost hunters visited and caught an eerie photo of a man in a mirror which I'll post it on socials, but it is, it is eerie. It is an eerie photo. Like I knew I saw something, but my eyes really had to adjust to see like the full face of this man. The ghost hunters also recorded the ringing of bells, possibly the servant bells strung up, as well as a voice coming from nowhere. A common ghost or apparition is a woman in a brown dress, thought to be one of the Treadwell daughters. There's also a woman in a black gown that wanders the house. The feeling of being watched is very common in the house. And since the house in, or houses in New York City, 
And since the house is in New York City, it's not like you can't see who's in the room with you, right? Like, I've mentioned it before, in my first apartment in Chicago, it was super long. And with the lights off, you couldn't see the end of the apartment. So I would often feel somebody looking at me at the end in the darkness. But it's New York City. These spaces, these rooms are small. And you're still feeling like you're being watched. No, ma'am. A staff member has felt someone looking over her shoulder while she reads a book. Which, I don't know if I would mind. I don't necessarily like people looking over my shoulder while I'm on my phone. But if a ghost wants to read along with you, and they can read, then why not? The paranormal is never-ending at this place, so make sure you get a ticket and check out the old merchant's house... I know I will be, and I'll probably go more than once. I hear October is the best time to go, because they may... I feel like I read somewhere that the museum does, like, a mock funeral at the house in October. Or they at least dress the house as if one of the family members died. But I definitely want to check it out, and maybe you'll see me there. Thank you all so much for listening and joining me this week. Check out the socials for photos related to each episode, guest info, and upcoming news. Email me your paranormal experiences at hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com. Could be anything from your tattoos coming alive and moving around your body to a mummy rising from the dead, sucking the life out of people, and taking over Egypt once again. Let me know. I love y'all and I'll meet you back here in a week because everyone loves a ghost story. The theme song is by Tyre. Follow him on Instagram at Queer Popstar and go stream his music anywhere you get your music. T-H-A-I-R. The artwork is by Pepe Munoz. Follow him on Instagram at p.e.p.e.munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. I got my information from Wikipedia, NYC Ghosts, MerchantsHouse.org, and a YouTube video from Obsolete Oddity. <laughs>